This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Pedro Gustavo Teixeira, author of The Legal History of the European Banking Union, released this year by Hart Publishing. Since the political and economic integration of Europe got underway in 1950, this has tended to accelerate through functional mini-unions, coal and steel, nuclear power, and maybe next healthcare. The latest of these projects is the banking union, born out of necessity at the height of the European financial crisis, but as Dr. Teixeira points out in this new history, built on foundations laid in the 1970s. The new union was given its political go-ahead in 2012, and by 2015, its core agencies, the single supervisory mechanism under the authority of the European Central Bank, and the single resolution mechanism were in place. Enormous changes have taken place since that summit nine years ago, but the union still has critical unfinished business. Few people are better qualified to guide us through this history from the inside than Dr. Teixeira. He joined the ECB at at its creation more than 20 years ago, working on questions of financial stability, became an advisor to the vice president, then ran the general secretariat before becoming the director general of banking supervision last October. Pedro, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Tim. Thanks for, for organizing this. It's, it's a pleasure to, to talk about my book, and you already did a very nice summary. Thank you. Right, thank you. Well, w- one thing I missed out from your CV is that you also teach at the Goethe University Institute for Law and Finance, and I believe this book is partly based on your course notes and, and, and you know, the, 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 the lectures that you teach. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, it, it has been. Uh, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to be able to to link between uh, you know my professional learning and then be, being able to pass it on to students. And one of the challenges was that actually every year I had to revise completely the course because there have been so many things, so many novelties uh, going on, and so that for- forced me to indeed invest uh, you know every time, every year into the academic literature and uh, and reflect about what was going on. And I was particularly challenged by the students. And as you can mm-hmm. imagine, particularly during uh, the height of the sovereign debt crisis, I had many students from uh, from Greece, from my country, Portugal and others, and they were very critical. And that made me think uh, a lot about what, what, what I was doing as well at the bank. Yeah. How long have you been teaching that course? I think it must have started in 2001, so uh, uh-huh. a little bit. So once uh, the euro was introduced, uh, there were many changes taking place at financial regulation. And, uh, and the University of Frankfurt decided to create this sort of uh, master's course that makes a link between the practitioners and, uh, and the acad- academic world. And, and who or what gave you the idea of turning this into a book? This uh, then became also at some point a dissertation for, for my PhD, uh, but it was also very much a sort of as I tried to mention in the beginning, a sort of a professional autobiography. So it's very much what I what I learned uh, without uh, inside knowledge as much as possible, uh, but very much about my reflections and in, in my technical work here at ECB. And it was very much the trying to find a, a logic for all these developments that have been quite fast. I mean, when I started mm-hmm. 20 years ago, 
although it's some time now, uh, I didn't, I could not imagine that we would go very far. And one one of the starting points was I, when I started working, uh, I was privileged to work with uh, Tommaso Palaschiopa, mm-hmm. that was also very much at the origin of the Morita Union. And his main point, and, and this I had the privilege to, to help him to, to make that point, was that the Morita Union, without a banking union, uh, had a, a you know, structural flaw. And so it was, uh, at the time, uh, we would think, okay, one day, maybe the banking union will be established, maybe banking supervision will be transferred to DCB because the central bank is well positioned. Uh, but I honestly never expected this would happen in, in my career. So the, the way it happened so, so quickly as well, uh, made me reflect and and this book is the result of those uh, reflections yeah well we'll come to some of the shortcomings of the banking union later but um uh did you feel that uh, some of its achievements and the speed at which it had been put together were perhaps underappreciated and that was another reason for for for, for getting this book out it's difficult to I mean clearly uh the banking union is result uh, of a perfect storm. So, the, I mean, as I argue in the book, is a combination of structural factors that have been going on. Uh, I mean, I trace it back to the SPAC report in 1956, mm-hmm. uh, to then, as you mentioned, in the 70s, uh, the, the 80s, with the, the start of the single market, uh, then the, the introduction of the euro, uh, and then the, the, the combination of the great financial crisis in, that started actually in 2007 and peaked in the, to, at the end of 2008, uh, and then followed immediately by the sovereign debt crisis. So this was has been, uh, now we have the pandemic, but uh, there's been uh, years of many crises put together. And uh, my argument is that this was not only the, the crisis, but actually there was some structural the logic that was uh, instilled in the in the Treaty of Rome, and so the, in that sense, uh, you're right that there's been a little bit underappreciated how quickly and uh, it was set up and how remarkable uh, it is. And this is what I tried to show in the book. At the same time, uh, it was not inevitable, but maybe there was an element of likelihood that uh, indeed it was. It is a little bit in the DNA of European integration that in order to, to preserve integration, you have to integrate more. And this has is, is been very much at the heart of, of the debate about the existence of the European Union. Yeah, and before the, the formation of the Banking Union from 2013 onwards, you, you run through, in the book, you run through these four previous stages, the uh, integration through harmonization from the mid 70s to the mid 80s, through competition to the late 90s, through governance until the the eve of the financial crisis in 2007, and then integration, or you know, as you say, potential disintegration th- through crisis from 2008 to 12. Can we quickly run through, well, not too quickly, but r- run through the different periods? So starting with the the first stage, 1973 to 84, which you sort of characterized by, as you said earlier, the, the, the kickoff from uh, Paul Henry Spark and the underpinning sort of auto liberal thinking, the idea that, um, that the law around financial, uh, financial markets should be very constrained and run by independent agencies. Can, can, we, can we go back to that first stage? Sure. The... I mean, what I argue and what I research, also from looking, you know, at uh, interviews that were made 
to, to, to the main product protagonist at the time uh, was that I mean the main objective from the beginning uh, has been to create uh, a common market. So the, it was felt, and particularly by Spark, and not so much by Jean Monnet, but, but Spark felt that, I mean, the way to make progress was not to go through uh, trying to have a political community from the start. Uh, and this was due to the failure in, in, also in the, in the early 50s of the European defense community, but instead to argue we should go towards a common market, to have a free market, and the objective of, of the treaty and then of European law should be to realize economic freedoms. And then by, by having a market and uh, an integrated market, then the rest will follow. So it was, that was even more than the Monet method, was very much the, the, the Spark method. And it had many influences. It had the influences of the, the antitrust law from the US at the time that influenced a, a lot of formation uh, of the European community but also indeed of the ordo-liberal thinking at the time. Uh, and this was, uh, it matched also the, the sort of German thinking of, of the, particularly of the finance ministry at the time. But it was a combination of things. I mean, I hesitate a little bit in the book to call it, you know, a purely ordo-liberal thinking, because in, in reality it came from, from many different influences. And so the, the, what I try to look is how this sort of thinking, so realizing the common market via enforcing the economic freedoms, uh, what were the approaches to get there? And so what you see is as influence of the context of the time, the economic situation, the ideology also of the time, that there were several approaches, but there was always a common denominator to those approaches, which was to realize economic freedoms via European law, but without transferring the competences to the European level. So without political competences at European level. So the idea was to have a, a common market that was exclusively regulated by European law and without interference of the member states. So this was attempted initially in the 70s by having uh, what I call integration via harmonization. So the idea was that you would harmonize all the national laws until you get common rules because they would be all the same. So then you'd have the common market. This has failed because there was unanimity voting. And so clearly uh, it was impossible to harmonize everything and particularly very quickly. And so there was no, in my view, no financial integration until the, the 80s when Jacques Delors and the commission at the time presented the white paper uh, on integrating the, the single market. And there it was influenced by also the Margaret Thatcher influenced a lot. Uh, yeah, also yeah. The quite, of the time. quite ironic how you point that out. So, yeah. <laughs> so that, that was a big push towards integration was the single market uh, concept. But even there, I mean, and there the concept was let's realize economic freedoms by letting, you know, the market create its own rules. So let's, let's have regulatory competition. Let's have everybody competing. And, and, and we do this via the now also in the context of Brexit, people talk about the single passport. And so the single passport means that uh, one member state recognizes the other's uh, laws and jurisdiction over the, the companies of origin, in this case, the financial companies of origin. And so also a lot has been uh, talked about it, but in reality, this was also not very successful because I mean, the member states remained protectionist. Uh, they applied several exceptions. And so in reality, they did not allow the law of another member state to apply in their own jurisdiction. So this I call integration through competition. And uh, uh, again, uh, I think challenging a little bit, uh, a bit the myth 
uh, in reality, there was not much uh, integration. Yeah, you make, you make a couple of really good points there. What One is, as you say, this, there was this general good ex exception that was, as you say, represented a powerful obstacle. But you also point out that, you know, while the, the preference of European policymakers was that you get cross-border uh, provision for financial services, in fact, because of these uh, host country obstacles, the preferred mode of market entry was acquisition of local firms. Um, so yeah, it's it, it does sort of challenge the the, 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 the the sort of yeah the myth about the about the, the efficacy of the passport. I think so a, a lot. See, in practice, I mean, not lot not a lot of integration has happened until then, until the euro was introduced. But indeed, the myth was that we had a single market in financial services and it was uh, well integrated. And uh, that was not the case, uh, I would say, in all fields: insurance, securities, and banking. So I think that the difference came uh, with the monetary union that uh, with the year was we know uh, the transparency of, of, of prices, the fact that there was no exchange rate risk and also a big push that, I mean, the, the euro showed and was a powerful uh, symbol as well, that there was an integrated market. And so all the incentives were made for let's create pan-European institutions, let's expand, let's have, you know, even small countries uh, can have, you know, large institutions and being able to provide their services across the single market. And so the paradigm then was very strong that it didn't matter where a bank would come from. It could be a very small member state. And at the limit, we even had Iceland that was mm -hmm. using the single passport. They can expand without limits within the, the, the single market. And so that was the, the paradigm and it lasted. And so there was a strong integration then from 98 until, until the financial crisis. And the financial crisis revealed what was wrong about this construction. And the construction was, let's create a free market, let's enforce economic freedoms. But since we don't want to transfer competences to the European Union, then there won't be any stabilization capacity. Uh, so as I put it uh, right at the end of the book, the whole concept was let's everybody can benefit from the single market. So it's a community of, of benefits, but we don't want to share the risks. So it's just a win-win situation for all. And if something goes wrong, then we see what happens. And what happened in 2008, and then it continued, was disintegration. Because, I mean, the, the flaw in all this construction was that in the end, you cannot really have a single market without some, some sort of stabilization capacity at European level. So it's, it's a total contradiction. And what the process led to was in the end that there were no competences at European level or national level that were able to cope with the risks of, of an integrated market. So that, that's a bit of contradiction that I tried to explore and explain that how this logic of, of, a, of, a, of a single market just with rules and no institutions how this can, can have the, you know, the seeds for its own disintegration. And then when this happens, you have this binary choice, which is a bit the, what is always discussed about the European Union is either you integrate more or you disintegrate. There, there doesn't seem to be nothing in between. So it's always about extremes. And this is very much due to the fact that uh, the EU uh, delivers in terms of output legitimacy. So the main legitimacy is the results, uh, the, the positive results it has. 
And whenever something does not deliver such positive results, immediately it is criticized. And so that's, that's a bit the flaw. Mm. And, and this is what I argue that needs to be overcome in the future. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yes, you, you make this point, uh, I mean, I mean in, the, in the final the chapter on the 2013 period onwards, that the, the idea really was that the SSM banks, or the, you know, the banks that are basically be, uh, uh, subject to supervision by the SSM, had essentially lost their nationality. And, and you say, quote, the, the aim was to enable a bank failure to be as close as possible to any other commercial company. Would you say that the experience since, uh, since then has, you know, uh, um, fulfills that wish? I mean, I'm thinking particularly of, of Monte Dupaschi, the Venetian banks, um, that really governments are very resistant to allowing the uh the hierarchy of losses under the bank recovery and resolution directive to to take place is is this spirit of the banking union being kept as much as the as as the law i think there it relates a little bit to your first also point that uh, it has been uh, very fast you know so the uh, all this change of regime, uh, total regime change, uh, and in particular, uh, as I argue, in the field of uh, bank resolution, was a sort of transition from uh, having uh, the state and the taxpayers being responsible for uh, bailing out a bank. And this changed from almost one day to the other to a sort of a private uh, risk-sharing regime uh, meaning that the ta- it's even forbidden for the taxpayers to to rescue a bank, mm-hmm. and so this was due to 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 the experience of 2008 and 2009, but it was also due to the experience of the sovereign debt crisis, and in particular is due to the logic that you cannot have risk sharing at European level. So it, there is no mechanism that you could have at European level to rescue now uh, banks uh, with European taxpayers' money. And so the, what I feel is the transition was very fast uh, and clearly uh, this transition of regimes are, are complex and complicated and, uh, and this is why uh, you see that it's not uh, sometimes very smooth, that, that transition. But I, I assign it more to, to, to that than to uh, the compliance with the law or not. So it's, it's a total regime change. To the extent that even banks uh, in the past, uh, it was argued that the rating of the bank depended on the rating of the member state where they were coming from. So this is what created then the the vicious uh, circle that led to to the creation of the banking union. So the nexus between the soundness of the member states and the soundness of the banks. So to change that, so it's removing a subsidy to some extent, so public subsidy to banks. Uh, this is is the takes time uh, taking into account that the, the banking sector has been crucially important for economic growth uh, in Europe and member states, and again, this is why we have a banking union in the end. Hmm. And but I mean, perhaps it's unfair of me to 
to suggest that, that the banks stand out as this special case, given that you know, governments are reluctant to let any companies I mean, uh, go out of business. If you look at, for example, the airlines, um, they, they don't seem to be treated particularly any differently from, from the banks. Um, I want, want to go back to, I mean, we'll certainly come back to uh, what's going to happen next and some of the unfinished business, but I'd, I'd like to go back to some of, some of the history as well. Um, I was quite surprised reading your book at how, um, you know, because I always expect the European Union to move by crisis, to, to make big changes when they have no choice but to make new changes. But there are quite a few occasions where, for example, in the uh, 1998 to 2007 period, big discretionary changes were made. Like, for example, you say um, community law provided for the first time extraterritorial powers to national authorities. There was this discussion, for example, about having absolute home uh, uh, home state authority. I mean, it didn't happen, but the fact that that discussion was taking place. Do you think it's has there been more um, has there been more uh, discretionary uh, push towards integration than, than perhaps people give? policymakers credit for? My argument in, in the book is that it, uh, it relates very much to the, again, to the logic of European law. No? So the, again, the, the logic was you need to realize economic freedoms and you have this historic evolution where in a way everything was tried. No? So the top-down approach was tried in the 70s, then the bottom-up approach was uh, tried in the, in the 80s uh, via this uh, having regulatory competition. Uh, then uh, sort of something in the middle, uh, sort of a third way was attempted with uh, what I call the, the new governance. So the so-called multi-level governance, which was to have committees uh, of national authorities to, to come up with European interests. Mm -hmm. Then this as well uh, had many, many flaws. Uh, and then, as you say, uh, then the other possibilities was to extend the, the jurisdiction of one member state over the other and to have uh, sort of extraterritorial. So, uh, so what there was was an attempt to have all the approaches in order to have common rules. So the, the quest in the past 50 years has been how to have uh, common rules. And this quest, uh, this is the argument of my book, uh, ends with uh, the banking union where there's a full centralization of, of competences. And so the, the point is that this supranational path that many have argued that is integration by stealth and, uh, and that in reality all this was done, uh, you know, hidden from the public. What I argue is that this was always clear from the from the SPAC report that gave origin to the Treaty of Rome. Mm. This has been always the, the path. And uh, and so what the, the, the institutions, European institutions, and the, the, the design of the law that was approved by, by the Council and the uh, European Parliament was always towards creating uh, ways and sometimes creative ways of uh, developing these common rules and enforcing these common rules. So the and so this is what I try to argue, that there is a logic that regardless of all these different approaches that gives you the impression that actually there was a, a lot going on, but the, the thread is, is, is the same one across all these years, all these decades. Mm -hmm. you, you also make a point during that, um, that same period, 98 to 2007, that the, one of the reasons that monetary union went ahead without banking union was 
Bundesbanks worry about the moral hazard of combining supervision with with monetary policy. And then it, in the latest in the banking union chapter, you talk about essentially how that was managed. You know, the creation of the supervision board and so on. From your from your experience inside the ECB, how has that gone in in, in practical terms? That that separation between uh, the monetary policy function and the supervisory function. I think at the time of the creation of the, of the monetary union, so the debate was indeed whether to have uh, the ECB uh, also with the uh, banking supervision powers. And actually, this was also pushed, uh, I believe, a lot by the by the Bank of England, mm -hmm. uh, because that was the, the model, so that the central banks had uh, supervision uh, when uh, when the Maastricht Treaty was being prepared in the, in the early 90s. And the concern, and again, very much linked to this concept that at European level, you can only have uh, you know, rules and uh, not institutions and no transfer of competences. Uh, the decision at the time to be consistent was, well, we cannot transfer as well regulatory policies to the, to the ECB, because this would imply that the Morte Union then would imply uh, some sort of uh, distribution or redistributional objectives, because in the end, financial regulation and banking regulation implies also a level of, of distribution and also of making choices. So the design of the monetary union, uh, as, as, as I think now everybody knows, is very much around ECB pursuing a clear objective, a price stability, and uh, and and so the, the, it's a rule-based framework. Mm -hmm. And so banking supervision, uh, I think, was seen as not really fitting into that concept, uh, even though uh, it, it would make sense, but clearly uh, would not fit into that concept. So that debate emerged again uh, once the, the SSM and uh, banking supervision was being transferred to, to the ECB and in the debates that took place in 2012 and 2013, and it was exactly the same debate. So how can we avoid, if you wish, polluting the, the, the pursuance of uh, price stability by the ECB with also the banking supervision? Because at the limit, there could be a conflict of interest uh, whereby the central bank uh, would be uh, trying to rescue banks via monetary policy. Mm. And so the, there, I think the, this was, and this is what I try to explain in the book, that the, this debate uh, shapes to a large extent uh, the way banking supervision uh, has been organized. And so in reality, we have, uh, and that I explore a lot in the book, the so-called uh, principle of separation, uh, in the sense that uh, within the ECB, uh, they are almost as if two, are two different institutions, the, the one institution dealing with central banking matters and the other one dealing with banking supervision. So there is a link that the, the governing council is the main decision-making for both Banking, banking supervision and uh, monetary policy, but this link is uh, mitigated by uh, by the fact that we have a procedure called non-objection, according mm -hmm. to which the, the governing council uh, only uh, can only object to proposals for supervisory decisions taken by the supervisory board. So it's it's a somewhat convoluted decision making, uh, but it fulfills the objective of having uh, this separation, this strict separation between the monetary policy mandate and the banking supervision mandate. And uh, and even though I mean, indeed, I'm I'm an insider, but I think uh, by all uh, evidence that has been accumulated in the past six years or seven years, 
uh, it works. I mean, there's, there's clearly a very strong separation. This has not been questioned and decision-making has been quite fluid. But this, again, I would say that in any case, but, uh, <laughs> but clearly that's, that's the evidence I gathered so far. What, what, what do you do on the occasions where there, there is potentially clear overlap? For example, um, you know, if the ECB wants to, if the monetary policy side wants to do something uh, like the Teltros, you know, something which has a substantial impact on the banks or the, or the dividend uh, ban or, um, you know, there, there are any number of these things that are crossovers between monetary policy and bank. How, how do you tend to manage those things? without giving too much away? The honest answer is that there is really the, 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 the rules that we have uh, set up, they are followed in the sense that the decisions are taken autonomously. So the, the central banking side takes those decisions without uh, considering the banking supervision aspects yeah. and, uh, and vice versa. So uh, it's, it's uh, clearly, I mean, this is why some would even argue that the, the, you know, the benefits of combining supervision in the central bank are not fully exploited because the, uh, in many central banks and particularly in the past, uh, it, it, all these aspects were combined. Uh, so this is the, I mean, the, the debate that has been going on for, for many decades. Uh, but in reality, what happens is uh, those rules are, are strictly followed. This is what yeah. I observe. So um, we, we, we've discussed your, your five chapters. You, at the end of the book, you talk about uh, what your potentially next chapter would be, which is a, a chapter of inter integration through politics. And you've already said that one of the key missing elements is this uh, full risk sharing, but the other is democratic legitimacy. What do you see as the democratic legitimacy policy? Uh, sorry, problem, not policy. The, the, the problem and, and, and the flaw, and, uh, and this uh, again also goes very much to the debate uh, in the 50s and, uh, and the debate between Jean Monnet and uh, Paul-Henri Spack about the concept of the, of the common market in the sense that Monet wanted to go uh, towards a more narrow approach, but deeper. So to have a sort of a political community from the start, uh, while uh, Spark, and that was the, the concept that was then reflected in the Treaty of Rome, wanted a wide market uh, without uh, political integration. Uh, and I think now that the banking union uh, shows that this is a flaw in the sense that if you integrate the market and the more you integrate it, you need to have a stabilization capacity, it means the capacity to stabilize, you know, market failures, uh, market shocks. And uh, this includes uh, fiscal capacity, so the capacity to use public funds at the limit, uh, also includes uh, enforcement capacity, so that you are able to enforce the rules throughout the market. And, and this cannot be done uh, without some sort of uh, you know, competences and you mentioned before some discretionary competences at European level. So the, the, the conundrum is how are you going to be able to have stabilization capacity for an integrated market if you don't transfer that capacity to the European level? And if you do that, then you need to uh, make sure that this is legitimate so that uh, because that stabilization capacity means that you have to take uh, distributional choices. So you have to decide that, uh, for example, you're going to use uh, fiscal funds 
uh, in, a, in some member state and not the other, for example, uh, at some stage. And then this can be inverted in the future. So these sort of decisions, this is what, uh, what is missing now in, a, in an integrated market. So that's a little bit my, my concern that uh, without having that stabilization capacity, there'll be always doubts about the sustainability of, of, the, of the EU. And uh, but if we want that stabilization capacity, then we have to find a way to make it to make sure that this is democratically democratically legitimate. Uh, meaning that if a certain decision is taken to to use funds, this is not challenged uh, in other corners of the EU uh, or in some corners of the EU, uh, depending on who gains with the mm. with the with the with the, with the stabilization uh, initiatives. And, and uh, for example, now in the pandemic, you see that debate also taking place. So it's, 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 it's complicated, uh, but I see it as key uh, for, for the future sustainability of the union. It, I, I'm trying to understand though exactly what you mean by what is the lack of democratic legitimacy. I mean, for example, I didn't see a big democratic, I didn't see a big pushback coming from the uh, the northern, uh, you saw a pushback coming from the north, some of the northern states executives, you didn't see really very much pushback from their parliaments on, on the pandemic relief, for example. Are you suggesting that the council alone, the council of ministers alone would not have the democratic legitimacy to uh, oversee the stabilisation measures, and this is something that would have to be overseen by the European Parliament, or, or could it be something that could is legitimised by the national executives and their national parliaments. I think that the pandemic was a positive step step forward, as I conclude briefly in the book, since it was finalized before the pandemic uh, really yeah. was still starting. I think the pandemic was clearly a step forward. This is why it has been hailed as, as, uh, as indeed a, a sign that uh, indeed there is a willingness to move forward. Uh, but I think what you mentioned, that has been exactly the debate in the establishing the European, the, the banking union. So whether you're going to have accountability at the European level only, or whether you're going to involve also national parliaments. And so in the, in the, in the regulation that set up the, the, the banking union and the so-called single supervisory mechanism, uh, this, is, this is one of the innovations so that the accountability of an European institution like the ECB remains towards the European Parliament, but the national parliaments also feature in the reporting. And, uh, and the reason is, uh, and I think there's even a recital in the regulation that mentions it, is because the impact of the decisions uh, of uh, banking supervision can have not only a European-wide impact, but also impacts on member states more than others. Yeah. And so this is the, the, the state of the debate. Are you going to put everything together? So national sources of accountability together with European sources, uh, and so you put everything together, or are we going to develop something new? So where there, there is indeed no challenge in the future that uh, certain decisions are legitimate. I think that the weakness in all this debate is that it's not very clear what will be the solution. This is what you are hinting at. It's not very yeah. clear what would be the, the framework that would solve these, these problems. I mean, it's a debate that's going on for a long time, we have reports. Uh, at the level of the European Union on this. We have uh, many academics discussing it, but I haven't seen yet uh, a sort of a credible uh, design of what would be then this ideal world. So, I mean, I don't think that uh, the European Union is not democratic. There are many sources of, of, uh, of democracy, but clearly 
there is an issue that when decisions are taken at European level uh, that have welfare effects, and this is this has been resisted throughout all these decades to a large extent, but once you have them, uh, then you have to make sure that these decisions then do not uh, cause uh, you know upheaval. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's a bit uh, the challenge. But the pandemic, uh, I think so far it has been has, has been showing that in a sort of a health public health emergency and in an area where also Europe doesn't have the competences, clearly there is a unity uh, around those decisions, and so that, that that has been a clearly a positive step as many many as have observed. Yeah, a couple of um, immediate uh, outstanding uh, issues for potentially the banking union. One is what will be done with these non-performing loans as we come out of the pandemic crisis. And you, your colleague, uh, Andrea Enria, has been proposing the creation of a European bad bank or a network of bad banks supported by European funding. Do you think, do you think this has a chance of, uh, of, uh, of, of coming into uh, existence? Would you mind repeating? Because I think I missed the last uh, oh, yes. sentence. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the idea of a European bad bank or a network of bad banks supported by European uh, uh, finance. Is it, do you think this has a chance of uh, coming into existence? There is, it's, I mean, the, 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 this proposal by, by my chair uh, is about uh, having a policy coordination, no? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we have been through this uh, before with the great financial crisis. We have also examples uh, coming from what was done in the US and other countries. And so the question is how, again, to coordinate, which is also uh, to some extent a distributional problem. And I think all evidence from the past is that if the NPLs and uh, and the resolution of NPLs is well coordinated, and since we have a banking union should be coordinated at European level, if this is done, uh, we have the the best possible uh, outcome. So it comes from, from historical evidence. And so again, it links very much to the argument uh, in my book that uh, once you have distributional uh, decisions to to make in the banking union, these have to to be taken at uh, at European level. So it's it's a similar debate regarding the European deposit insurance, where the problem is that it may happen that uh, in real terms, uh, an euro deposited in in a country with a weak deposit insurance scheme then it's worth less than a euro deposit, uh, deposited in a bank uh, mm-hmm. of a country with a strong deposit insurance scheme. So we cannot have, you know, deposits in euros having different uh, worth, different value across member states. So also there, that's the argument for, to have an European deposit insurance scheme. And then we have, again, the arguments of the past about moral hazard and whether we can have these sort of distributional uh, mechanisms at, uh, at European level. So I think the, the proposal by Andrea here is a, is a consequence, is an implication of having a banking union, uh, the same as a European deposit insurance scheme. They all fall in the same category. And so that shows how still incomplete is this process of transition, uh, as I was mentioning before. Yeah, the other big piece of unfinished business, it seems to me, is the, you know, the, in fact, potentially it's got worse, which is this... Um, increase in domestic holdings of uh, of uh, home state sovereign bonds so um yeah and, and it's been proposed for many many years that there should be some kind of prudential limits on this for the domestic banks and at the same time you've got all these these major banks becoming essentially uh, uh europe europeanized 
do you think the the collective action clauses have been introduced to the bonds and the and the BRRD itself prov- will provide the necessary signals over time for banks to uh, not to be overexposed to their domestic sovereign? Um, or, or is there another potential solution to this? In the, in the context of my book, I mean, what I mentioned is that all that you are referring to, the collective action clauses and domestic holdings of sovereign bonds, all this relates to this uh, debate regarding risk reduction. You know that uh, what was mentioned in the beginning of the of the banking union, and uh, for example, one of the in main initiatives that were taken and that before the the, the the single supervisory mechanism was established was to have a stress test. It was called the comprehensive assessment. So where all the banks that uh, were supervised and are supervised by the CB they were subject to a stress test uh, to, to assess you know, their, 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 their soundness before being supervised at European level, and therefore before being, in a way, subject to the, to, to the European control. And so all that you mentioned is clearly uh, is, is about to debate that the, the banks have to be Europeanized, not just in terms of the European regime and European protection, if you wish, or European regulation, uh, but also in terms of their balance sheets, so that the, 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 if they have to be Europeanized, and also their balance sheets have to be Europeanized, and and, and this has been very much in the debate, uh, so-called of risk reduction, so that uh, and again linked to the moral hazard debate, where uh, some member states uh, should not then be more liable for the banks of other member states. So this process. Again, it's supposed that takes time, so the transition takes time, but that's the direction, so the Europeanization of the banking system in all its aspects. Okay. Well, um, finally, uh, I ask every guest to recommend a book, any book they like, uh, to, to listeners. What, what have you chosen? I was thinking about it and maybe uh, somewhat unconsciously also had a little bit of an influence in uh, when I was writing this book. Uh, is one from uh, uh, Mark Mazauer, the historian, called uh, Dark Continent, uh, about the 20th century in Europe. And I think his, his main argument is that the, uh, Europe's democracy and uh, democratic regimes uh, possibly was one of the, one of the outcomes, one of the conceivable outcomes of the, of the tumultuous history of the 20th century. So his main argument is that it was not inevitable that uh, democracy would uh, become the dominant regime in Europe, uh, that this was one of the possible outcomes, and so we should not take it uh, for granted. And so in my book, uh, I'm not sure if I was successful in that, but I tried to, to also mention that integration was not inevitable, uh, European integration, the banking union was not inevitable, Maybe it was likely due to the logic that uh, has been there since the, the Treaty of Rome, uh, but clearly we can have many other outcomes. And so this is why uh, we have to, I mean, every day look at what can be improved and uh, what, uh, and, and critically challenge as well the, the future of the European Union. Yeah. And so this is why the, the book by, by Mark Mazauer is, is, is also quite important in that regard. Yeah, right. excellent choice. Um, Today I've been talking to Pedro Gustavo Teixeira about the legal history of the European Banking Union, released this year by Hart Publishing. Pedro, thanks again for coming on. Thanks a lot. It was really a pleasure.